available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Welcome to Outlook. I'm Sheila Allen and this edition is being recorded on Wednesday the 27th of September and coming up in the next 90 minutes or so we have got something new for you from Sarah. We've got Margaret talking about the Arboretum at the London Road Cemetery, Nigel talking both on artificial and intelligence and on ROM, um, a bit about the um, spiders that some of us tend to be a little bit scared of, but maybe not all the time. A piece about artificial intelligence, hurdy-gurdy days about Coventry, and blind and his, sorry, Dave and his blind sports games. So there's all sorts of mixing there for this week, so I'm sure there's some that you'll enjoy. But we're going to start, as usual, with a review of the past week's news with your readers, Elaine and myself. Outlook News. Two sky blue stars were special guests when potentially life-saving equipment was unveiled at one of Coventry's largest music venues. Callum O'Hare and Fabio Tavares took a break from training on Friday, September 22nd to support the launch of a defibrillator and bleed kit at HMV Empire in Hertford Street. The equipment was donated by the Our J Foundation set up in memory of inspirational teenager Jamie Rees, who died at University Hospital Coventry after suffering a cardiac arrest in rugby in January 2022. The lack of a publicly accessible defibrillator close to where Jamie collapsed in Hill Morton severely restricted his survival chances. The charity bearing Jamie's name has raised more than £100,000 for defibs to be installed, not just in rugby, but right across the country. A staggering 85 devices have so far been fitted outside schools, shops, pubs, clubs, warehouses and business premises up and down the country. To say that we are a little bit starstruck after today would be a huge understatement, said Naomi Rees-Issett, Jamie's mum, and the driving force behind our J. We'd like to thank Phil Rooney from HMV Empire Coventry for holding a great unveiling of our J's defibrillator and bleed kit. Coventry City players Callum O'Hare and Fabio Tavares came along and were so supportive of Jamie's legacy and everything we are trying to achieve. They have gone back to Coventry City Football Club to work on getting our CPQR code on their kits. Callum and Fabio didn't just turn up for launch pictures, they signed a number of items which the charity intends to auction at a later date. A major project to transform the city into the UK's first all-electric bus city by 2025 has taken a major step forward as 80% of National Express's Coventry fleet is now zero emission. The firm has introduced 130 new double-decker zero-emission all-electric vehicles to operate in the city. The latest 130 vehicles follows the 10 fully electric double-decker buses in- introduced in 2020. A £140 million project has seen National Express Coventry's electric buses travel over 2.5 million miles since they were first introduced in August 2020. 
The new buses produce zero carbon emissions at the tailpipe and are powered by renewable green energy thanks to solar panels, a second life battery and charge point infrastructure. They take four hours to charge and can run for up to 175 miles depending on the time of year. Councillor Jim O'Boyle, City Council's Cabinet Member for Jobs, Regeneration and Climate Change, said, This is great news. It's a significant step towards the decarbonisation of the city's transport network, building on the Council's investment in public charge point network and our investment in new cycle routes. I've used the new electric buses and they're very smart, comfortable to ride on, and most importantly, are good for our environment. A two-year funding package has been secured to help provide services to prevent rough sleeping in Coventry. The City Council has secured nearly £454,000 from from 2023 to 2025, which will help existing services continue. It will also help fund staff involved in outreach and specialist support for people who have complex needs and who often find themselves sleeping on the streets. The current outreach team is multifunctional, including specialist roles and projects that tackle the local issues in Coventry. These include a complex women's navigator, someone working with non-UK residents who have no recourse to public funds, a drug and alcohol treatment specialist, and a mental health community worker. It also includes staff working to support ex-rough sleepers in their new accommodation to help prevent them from returning to homelessness. It also works with ex-offenders to help them settle in at new accommodation. Jim Crawshaw, Head of Housing and Homelessness, said, We will support people for as long as they need it and work to secure accommodation for those homeless. It's important to know that there are people with complex needs who prefer to sleep out, even when accommodation is available to them. We have empty beds most nights, and despite our intervention, people often don't accept support. The additional funding will allow the team to focus more on prevention and recovery, while still maintaining our ability to respond and support people in crisis. Britain's first ever Asian policeman, a Coventry Bobby, has been thrust into the spotlight after the release of a short film. The eight-minute film called Inspector Dar reflects on Mohammed Youssef Dar's career as Britain's first Asian police officer, who began his career in Coventry in March 1966. The idea came from the West Midlands-based actor Vimal Kaupal, who during lockdown in 2021 was looking to create a piece of Asian individuals who had settled in Britain. Vimal spoke to Coventry Live about how he came across Mohammed's story. He told us, I was surprised to learn there was so little information about him. Mr Dart made the front page of many national newspapers, having previously worked for the Tanzanian Police Force, and his service in 1960s Coventry paved the way for a more diverse police force. Mohammed was originally born in Nairobi, Kenya, where his grandparents lived, but then he moved to Tanganyika when he was a couple of months old. He described growing up there as heaven on earth. As a child, I used to read all different detective books, and that's where the journey started, he said. He started his policing in Tanganyika when he was 16, but when he asked about his age, he was initially told he could not be accepted as he was under 18. 
Mr. Dar said. The interview went so well and the man was so impressed. He said, don't worry, you can start now and while you finish the training, you will be 18. Mr. Dar then became the youngest inspector of the Tanganyan Police Force. In 1966, at the age of 23, he arrived in London and stayed there for a couple of months, but thought it was too big, so decided to settle in Coventry, where some of his friends were. He initially started work at the GEC factory as a machine operator, making parts for telephones. Mohammed, now in his 80s, recalled the Chief Constable of Coventry Police say something that would decide his career. I heard them on television say Coventry will soon have policemen of colour on the road, so I thought I would take a chance, he said. He walked into Little Park Street for an interview and was taken upstairs. By the time he had finished in the afternoon, he had signed on as a police officer. He said, I have seen a lot of changes and mm. every year I will go and visit at least some sort of police force and the way they have improved is very good. At the time he began policing in the UK, the population of Coventry was 90% white. But Mr. Dar said he didn't experience racism. He said, this made me very proud because it was a different era then. Yet, it, it, he said, it eventually became clear that his ethnicity and Muslim faith were getting in the way of him rising up the ranks. So he left after two years and went on to become a private investigator and business owner. Giving advice to young people now who wish to join the police force, he said, with the modern police force and with the racism which has gone away, you have a good chance and you can achieve the highest post. A Coventry youngster has been praised for quick thinking that helped to save a man's life. Police Cadet 2CV Cadet Braithwaite was on his way to a cadet's meeting on Tuesday, September the 19th, when he saw a man in distress in Coventry City Centre. Others were said to have passed by without stopping, but not Cadet Braithwaite, who rushed to Coventry Central Police Station, where he notified two on-duty officers to the man's serious condition. The officers went to find the man and discovered he was in a severe diabetic coma with low insulin levels. They called the ambulance service and the man was rushed to hospital for life-saving treatment. Thankfully, the casualty's condition stabilised and was no longer life-threatening, thanks to Cadet's actions. Cadet Braithwaite said, I hope this encourages people to say something if they see something. Even if you can't help someone or don't know how, just telling someone can make all the difference. Chief Inspector Darrell Lyon from the Coventry Local Policing Area said he was extremely proud of the values Cadet Braithwaite had shown in undoubtedly saving a life. While others passed by without intervening, Cadet Braithwaite demonstrated humanity, compassion and quick thinking to help the man to get life-saving treatment required, showing ingenuity and critical thinking, which will no doubt serve him well in the future, he said. A Coventry councillor has revealed the harrowing details that greeted him when he went out to help in the aftermath of the tragic Moroccan earthquake. Councillor Marcus Lapser for Westwood Ward, who works closely with Council Aid, headed to Morocco alongside other volunteers, Bill Matto and CEO of Council Aid, Ravi Singh, to help reach the remote mountain areas with supplies. They arrived in Morocco on a Saturday evening and did an assessment of what type of aid was required and whether they needed tents, blankets, food or medical supplies. We were very worried when we arrived due to the number of people on the street, but then when we eventually got to the south it was just total devastation, he said. 
While over there, another local charity called Sanad Al-Jawi was helping along Kausa Aid, giving tents and blankets to people in the crisis, and the charity also sourced clothes for every single person in the village. Marcus told us how they tried to reach a remote village that was totally inaccessible and blocked, but with aid not being able to reach them, he, along with Kausa and the charity, Sanad, walked for two hours up the Atlas Mountains just to get to the village. He said, we had travelled parallel through the epicentre. We were about five or ten kilometres in and our hearts were thumping ten to the dozen. It was the middle of the night and that's when you're stuck in traffic jams that might be six or seven miles long on mountain roads. I was thinking, I'm on a path with a sheer drop to the side of me. If we get a, a tremor now, that's a frightening part. Mr Lapps said it was difficult but he had no choice and had to carry on. He said it was 95% devastation. It was totally heartbreaking. I was talking to a young lad who had lost his whole family. He had a bandage on his head and you could see the blood seeping through. He was showing me the cracks in the road in the parts we were walking on and there were mountain paths. Uh, so this is when the adrenaline really kicked in as you know you have to get there but it is so dangerous. He was showing buildings where families were still trying to take rocks off the top layers but he said there was no equipment or aid where he was. There was only council aid and Sana charity up in these villages at the time. He added... There was one guy whom I was introduced to who had lost his wife and children and he was standing in rubble and he had nothing except the clothes he was standing in. Plans to tear down a derelict but locally important Coventry church for a new care home have been refused by the council. Locally listed St Nicholas's Church in Radford has not been used for 14 years and is significantly dilapidated according to a 2021 report. The report noted a catalogue of problems with the 1950s building, such as asbestos in the basement, no roof covering and mouldy carpets, and estimated it would cost £2.8 to repair. But a scheme to demolish the church and replace it with a brand new 36-bed care home for adults with complex needs was denied permission last week. Several council departments and a national group that campaigns to protect important 20th century buildings objected to the bid, and the church's heritage was a key reason why plans for the home were turned down, according to the council officer's report. Despite not being statutory listed, the building is highly significant locally and its total loss under the plans would result in substantial harm, the report said. This harm would need to be outweighed by significant benefits and have substantial justification, but officers did not judge this to be the case. They criticised the home's design as a simple building, which lacks any distinctive features relating to the site's history or reusing of its architecture. The proposals do not reflect local distinctiveness or special architectural significance of the site, the report said. Officers also judged the scheme would also be an overdevelopment of the site and an incongruous feature out of keeping with the area. And while the church is in poor condition, this does not affect its heritage importance or the benefits of the plans, the report said. Coventry has once again gone gold in memory of Ben Crowther, a young boy from Earlston. Ben died from a rare form of childhood cancer in 2019. 
His mother Sarah and father Scott set up a charity in his memory called Pass the Smile for Ben. The charity raises money to fund research into different types of childhood cancer. Many businesses across the city have gone gold this month, from Mills's Cafe Bar to O'Toole's Cafe. Coventry City Council has supported the cause by turning the lights golden across the Whittle Arch in Millennium Place. As September has been Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, Sarah told us what this entails for the charity. It is an internationally recognised month where the whole childhood cancer community can come together. Everyone is encouraged to show their support for the children, young people and families who have been affected by childhood cancer. Previously, a gold bike was placed outside Hurstville Primary School, where Ben was a pupil, and the bench was painted gold in August outside Earlston Library as a reminder of the bravery shown by Ben and other kids who have lost their lives. So far, the charity has raised over £194,000 for research and has previously raised over £30,000 for other childhood cancer charities, but Sarah doesn't intend to stop there. We have other events coming up, like a charity bowls tournament, Go Gold Rock Line and the Coventry Half Marathon, she said. Sarah wants Ben's legacy to live on. We want to continue spreading awareness and raising funds for research, so in the future families won't have to go through what we have, she said. We want kinder treatments that work and we want a cure. Ben would want us to do this in ways which would make people smile. And in addition to that, the Coventry Rocks Go Gold is lined up in Spencer Park, if you're walking round there. Oh, right, OK. Coventry City Council's money-making activity is not out of keeping with its size, a council officer has stressed, amid fears over the finances of UK councils. It comes amid concern that more councils will go the way of Birmingham and have to issue Section 114 notices, effectively declaring bankruptcy. While Birmingham's fate was linked to equal pay claims, several other councils have seen their finances plunged into difficulty in the past few years due to risky investments. But a commentary scrutiny meeting last week, looking at the council's commercial activity, how it gets money to fund services other than grants, taxes and rates, had what officials will no doubt view as more reassuring news. Speaking at the meeting, Finance Manager Paul Jennings said, In all of this, we need to bear in mind the background, some fairly significant council failures in recent years. A number of these have been linked to commercial financial activity outside the norm, in relation to commercial activity out of proportion with the size of the council. I'd like to stress, in our case, our level is not disproportionate to how big we are as a council. A report for the meeting also said the council hasn't engaged in the most outwardly risky commercial activity, for example more speculative investment outside council borders or on a disproportionately large scale in order to get returns. This type of venture has been on the rise in recent years and is most linked with the recent financial failings where Section 114s had to be issued, it added. Warnings that more councils could see financial failure were raised by credit rating agency Moody's earlier this month. The company listed the 20 authorities that have borrowed the most compared to their size, and Coventry was not on the list, and said pressures included inflation, interest rates and commercial property investments. 
We expect more English local authorities to fail over the near term, said its report in The Guardian. But according to Coventry City Council's report, its commercial activity is based on strong justifications and there was a return of 4.2% on its asset values last year. The Council's largest area of risk is investment property, which generated 13 millions of income last year. But this is not a significant financial risk, the report said. The vast majority of the assets are ones that have been owned by the Council for many years and or have been purchased by means other than borrowing. Therefore, the Council is not faced with the need to meet a repayment cost for the assets. Outlook News Right, thank you to Elaine for helping with the news this week. Um, some very different bits there, so I hope you find something you liked. And the only announcement I have got this week is about Sunrise and Sunset. Have you noticed that we're now in about 12 hours, because Sunrise is 7 o'clock mm. and Sunset is 6 minutes to 7? That's because we've gone past the equinox. It's certainly a lot darker in the evenings, particularly when it's as dark and wet and miserable as it's been lately. But anyway, enough about the weather. So, as I mentioned earlier, Sarah's going to do something new for us this week. It's a trailer episode called On in Coventry. Here's Sarah. Hello there. It's Sarah again, but this time not with sport. Now, welcome to what I hope may become a regular feature, well, fortnightly is my target, called On in Coventry or on in Cov to keep it short. In it, I'm going to highlight some shows and performances that are on, as a minimum, at the three main venues in Coventry. Those being the Albany Theatre, the Belgrade Theatre and the Warwick Arts Centre, which despite its name is actually in the City of Coventry boundary. I also hope to check out the access for visually impaired people at each of the venues, particularly the location from the entrance of the auditorium, the loos and the bar. Well, those are what I always rate anyway. Now, I don't believe in lastminute.com, so I aim to give at least one week's notice, possibly more, if I think something may sell out quickly. Now, can I just emphasise, this is not a recreation of What's On, which was so excellently presented by Sue Parker for so many years and was a weekly event. This is, if you like, a bit of a poor relation, but I want to bring you some of the salient features that are on in our fine city. So, I'll give you a starter or a sample. Now, something that particularly took my mind at the Albany Theatre, we have a full-scale production for one night only of Shakespeare's Macbeth. This is on Wednesday, October the 11th, starting at 7 o'clock, although there is a 1.30 schools performance, which we may manage to muscle into if, like me, 
our night vision is not the world's best thing. Ticket prices are from £13 to £24. Now, also on at the Albany, we have an evening of tunes and chat with the status quo legend Francis Rossi, but this time on his acoustic guitar. Now, this is on Sunday the 15th of October, starting at 7.30, with ticket prices from £31 to Eighty-one, But I think the 81 is probably the package whereby you meet Mr. Rossi. Anyway, further details from the box office. 024-7699-8964 Meanwhile, on at the Belgrade, we have Sister Act coming for a week's run. This award-nominated production is described, and I love this, as Brace yourself, sisters, the habit is coming to Coventry. Now, in short, it's a musical, and it's about a disco diva, Debris, or Debris if you spell it another way, who witnesses a murder and has to seek refuge in a convent for her safety. Wow, certainly getting in the habit. Now, there are audio-described performances, but I can't find out from the website when these are. Tickets are from £18. Ring the box office on 024-7655-3055. But note, the box office is only open from 10.30 till 2pm. Now, going up to the Warwick Arts Centre, which is in Coventry, and I will say that and say that and say that. Two things particularly caught my eye. There is an evening with the TV presenter and adventurer Simon Reeve giving a talk entitled To the Ends of the Earth. Now, ticket prices for that, I'm afraid, are also £31. Also, beginning in October, we have the series of weekly jazz concerts. Now, these take place on a Friday from 5.30 till 7.15 and it's described as being in the foyer. Now, I've tried to find a price because it says booking essential or booking recommended, but I can't find one. But given that it's described as being in the foyer, well, anyway, if you're interested in those weekly jazz concerts or the Simon Reeve talk, ring 024 seven six four nine six thousand and that has been your trailer for on in cov bye well hope you like that do let us know what you think of it now we're going to find out what's happening in the resource center from joe thank you very much hello again everybody and yes it's me again 
Uh, Hugh, I am delighted to say, is feeling much better and has been back in the resource centre this week uh, trying to catch up a bit on things. And he's now at his annual conference. It's an organisation called Visionary, who are very uh, supportive of charities that deal with sight loss. And they have a conference every year, which it's great for him to go on and meet with other people running charities like this one and uh, get some uh, ideas and a bit of fresh input. So and where is he? Uh, do you know what? I haven't got a clue. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> He's somewhere around. Uh, I think it's Midlands-based, but I couldn't honestly tell no, you. No. Um, <laughs> He's somewhere anyway. All I know is at the end of the phone. <laughs> so, yeah, so he comes back refreshed, and it's good to get a little bit of fresh input now and again, isn't it? get very busy in life so he will be back in the centre on Friday and around again after that hopefully without any hiccups so um, what have I got to tell you all about this week so there's a few things Hugh has asked me to remind you that um, we are aware that it's difficult for people generally but especially if you don't have sight to find your way through directories of contractors and builders and people that might come in and do jobs for you at home and uh, we have sort of sometimes people telling us they've used a contractor mm. or, or somebody's mm. done a job for them that they thought was really well done mm. and they were very happy with mm. and we we'd like to set up what is going to be a very informal trusted trader list mm. we're not obviously able to make recommendations but we can perhaps have a list of people that we know others have found mm. useful mm. so he would welcome your contributions to that. So if you've used somebody to do work for you at home or in some other way that you think would be of value to people, could you please let us have the information about what the job was, what their name is and their company name and their contact details? Or just let us have the company name and we'll look that up. Um, so it's just a way of trying to make life a bit easier for people, really. Good idea. Um, so you can bring that information in to reception or you can email it to us if that's easier or you can phone us with it, whichever you like. Um, second thing, a couple of things about groups. Uh, as you know, we run a lot of different activity groups here over the course of a week. Um, there are two new ones coming up and one just starting up again. So the weekly cooking group um, meets on a Thursday and Roop, who uh, is the volunteer that runs it, is starting that up again on the 5th of October. We have a very small kitchen, as you probably know, uh, so we have to limit that to four people at a time. Um, but if you'd like to be on a waiting list for this or any other group, please let reception know and we'll add your name to the, the waiting list and see if we can get you onto a course at the next opportunity. Um, the two new courses, one is Creative Reading Group, which is going to be run by Jess, who is the lovely volunteer that runs our creative writing group on a Monday afternoon. And it will primarily be initially for people that go to the creative writing group, but it will have scope for others to join. So it's going to run on the first Thursday of every month. I think I've got that right. I'm just checking my notes. Um, sorry, that will be... Yeah, Thursday, first Thursday of the month, between 6.30 and 8.30 in the evening. Um, so, again, we'll, we'll keep a waiting list for that, and we'll, we'll be starting it shortly and seeing how it goes and how many spaces there are and how the transport goes and all of that sort of thing. Um, 
And the second group that is going to get started soon is going to be run on a Monday. That'll be the third Monday of every month. I don't expect you to remember all this, by the way. <laughs> you will not be tested later. Um, third Monday of every month in the evenings. Uh, that will be what we're calling the M3 group, which is the third Monday group. Uh, 6.30 to 8.30. That's going to be run by Chris Norman and Matt Horsball. And the idea behind that one is that it's going to appeal and be set up really for what we might consider to be the younger age group. And <laughs> when I say younger, we're <laughs> including up to 40s. So still young. <laughs> by my standards, that's young. And by most of our standards here, that is still young. So anyone up to about the age of 40. Um, so we're hoping that that will be a forum for a different sort of kind of group to get together. And um, it will be once a month. They'll set their own agenda. And just a bit of time of socialising and getting together and sharing. It's a music as well, maybe. Uh, well, up to them, really, but possibly. Chris is a good musician, and so is Matt, so uh, you never know. Um, I think the idea primarily is just trying to give an, a place for younger VI people. And is evening things new? Having them in an evening, is that new? Uh, it is. We, we do the theatre trips, as you know, once a month, mm. pretty much once a month, uh, as a sort of ad hoc. Uh, these are new groups that are going to be running in the evenings. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> there are logistical challenges involved in that, of course, getting people in and out. Mm -hmm. um, so, But maybe some people might find it easier to come in if family members might want to bring them, for example, or yeah. you know, there might be more different mm -hmm. options. But yeah. We are trialling this out, and it is only on a once-a-month basis. Mm. Which room will they be in? I uh, don't know. They, they'll have the choice of Mary Beale Room or Boston Lodge Lounge. Mm. So mm. there'll be two spaces. So, yeah, so uh, hoping that that will... Um, I know that Jess has got plans for the creative reading group uh, you know, to connect up with some quite interesting things. So um, the other thing I think I'd like to just mention is... I have mentioned before that Global Makes Some Noise fundraising event that's going on on the 5th of October. Mm. And that will be on, I don't know about telly actually, but some TV I think we're covering it, but certainly most of the radio programmes that are uh, run by Global's media. So Classic FM, I've been listening in the car as usual and I hear it mm. pop up quite regularly mm. on there, Global's mm. Makes Some Noise. And there's a big fundraising campaign going on that they are doing, they are running it and they are going to support 40 charities this year including us as we applied earlier in the year so they're going to give us a big chunk of money to help run to help towards the costs of running some of our key services yeah, brilliant. so we are a bit limited in terms of being able to do much promotion um, but one thing I just wanted to mention is that Hugh will be on the radio uh, Heart FM Midlands mm -hmm. will be interviewing him on the 29th of this month, Ooh. and that will be broadcast, we think, on the 6th of October. That's Friday, the 29th. This Friday, he's and being interviewed. 6th of October is mm. next Friday. Yeah, so it's coming up soon. Uh, when we know for sure what date that broadcast goes out, we'll let you know, but mm. it might be nice to hear. Yeah. Hugh will have a chance to tell people all about the work we do here at the mm. centre mm. and about the issues of visual impairment and about how we will use their lovely oh. fundraise money for us. All publicity is good. It is Hopefully. indeed. Absolutely. So thank you very much indeed, and I'll, I think you will be back talking to you again next week, but you never know. <laughs> Thanks very much, Jen. <laughs> and now, as usual, Sarah's here again with another sports report. Outlook Sport. 
Well, howdy, folks, and welcome to this week's Sport with Sarah. Now, first of all, I'd like to say hello to my fans. Yes, I do have some. Apparently, I see lots of them on the way to the Monday Club. And also, I'd like to say a big hello to Joan. Joan in Warwick. Oh, yes, Joan, I know you like sport. Not sure why, but hey-ho, takes all sorts. Right, I'll start with Coventry City. Well, fresh from a defeat at Cardiff midweek last week, we lost three goals to two. Coventry entertained Huddersfield at the CBS Arena this week, Monday night. When are we going to get Saturday afternoon matches at the CBS? Anyway... It was all going so well. The 27th minute, Ellis Sims absolutely charged down, made the goal shot, but saw it deflected out by the goalkeeper. And then one of our players, who almost just happened to be standing there, Ayari, nodded it home. 1-0 City. And so it remained until the fourth minute of four minutes extra time when they equalised. Hey-ho, another draw, but at least it wasn't a loss. But come on, City, you've really got to get going now. You spent all those mega bucks over the summer. Anyway, the next match, that is this Saturday, September the 30th, is a Saturday afternoon match but it's down at Queen's Park Rangers. Now, staying with football, but moving down a few leagues, Leamington beat Bromsgrove 2-0, which means the breaks, which is what Leamington are called, have now had five successive wins in the league. So, well done, Leamington. However, same league, Stratford Town travelled to Hales-Owen, and I'm afraid they lost 2-0. But in a different league, Nuneaton Borough beat Royston Town 1-0. Now, on the international front, England women played Scotland women in the first tie of the Nations Cup. I have to say, it's a cup I've never heard of, but apparently the winner and the runner-up get automatic entry into the Olympics, which is only a year away. So, you know, it's really worth doing well in in this competition. Anyway, the tie was played in Sunderland, and England came away 2-1 winners. Now, there is a lot of rivalry between England and Scotland, Not, I would say, on a par with England-Australia. But you may remember a few years back when Scotland had been knocked out of a football competition, Andy Murray was asked who he wanted to win as Scotland went in. And he replied, any team but England. I think his PR company had a word with him after that and he has mellowed. Now, keeping with balls, as we will, I'm afraid, for the holes of this section, 
the but go into the ovoid shaped bore in the code of union. I mentioned last week that Coventry in the Premiership Cup were travelling to Hartbury University and I said I'd never heard of them. Well, I really feared I'd put the kiss of death on them, especially when I found out that Coventry had lost on all six visits to Hartbury and also that they are the feeder and developer academy for young players for Bath and Gloucester. But I needn't have worried because Coventry absolutely dominated and at one stage were 28 points to zero up. The match ended eventually on 35 points to 19, but that meant that Coventry also got the bonus point for getting four tries and that's going to be really vital when it comes to working out the table. Now Coventry are playing Nottingham this week. I think it should be at home but if you're interested do check out the website. Meanwhile on the international front the World Championship continues and it's congrats to all of our home nations. To England, who absolutely thumped Chile 71-0. In fact, it got to the stage, I just wanted Chile to score. To Ireland, who beat South Africa. To Scotland, and especially to my second team, Wales, who thumped Australia. 40 points to 6. Last week I told you that Great Britain's tennis players had beaten Australia, France and Switzerland to make it through to the final eight in the Davis Cup. That was the good news. The bad news is that in the first round of the final eight we've drawn Serbia. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a little country, you might be thinking. Yes, but amongst a field of really good, tall tennis players, they have one Mr Novak Djokovic. I'm sorry, but our lads ain't going to do it. Still, hey-ho, it's, it's the taking part that matters. Now, in golf, at the weekend, it was the Solheim Cup. The Solheim Cup is basically Europe women versus America's women and we were the holders. Now it was held in Spain. In fact at one stage the King of Spain was out watching and I have to say the European captain on the first round chose a very strange order of play, sending out as the first pairing two newcomers to the competition. Anyway, at that stage, by lunchtime on the first day, Europe were 4-0 down. But we clawed it back at one stage. We were leading, but we eventually tied 14-all, which means that Europe get to keep the cup as the current holders bit like the Ashes really, except it worked against us then. 
Now this weekend sees the Ryder Cup being held at the Marco Simona course, which is described as half an hour's drive from Rome. Now British players who you might have heard of who are featuring there include Rory McIlroy, Matt Fitzpatrick, Tommy Fleetwood and Justin Rose. The format is very traditional, well, it always stays the same. And it's basically pairs, foursomes and singles. Now the difference between the pairs and the foursomes is that although there are still groups of four players, in the pairs, the players, there are only two balls in play. So Europe will have a ball and America will have a ball and they, the players will alternate who hits it. Whereas in the foursomes, which my dad used to call foursome better ball, there are four balls in play and the best one of the four counts. The singles is what it says on the tin. And the singles always finishes the Ryder Cup on the Sunday. Now, it's being featured mostly on Sky but there are highlights on BBC Two at 8.30 on Friday and Saturday and 7.30 on Sunday. It's also being covered by the radio on BBC, so I would imagine Five Live. Now I want to give a big shout out to Sarah Jane Nichols. Who, you're saying? Well, Sarah Jane competed and was the BMX world champion in 1987. And now, 30 years later, well, more than 30 years, she's back in the saddle. And she recently finished third in the British Championships veteran class, which is only over 30s, and she's 50 several and by finishing third has qualified for next year's world championships and by the way when she retired in inverted commas the first time from bmx riding she took up ice hockey oh. and that has been your sport have a good week folks so as we move from summer into autumn, Sport Around the UK gets more winter orientated. But Sarah can still report on more summery sports from sunnier clients. And now it's time for your bit of the post bag. It's post bag with Dave. This is post bag. Join in the discussion. Hello, it's a big welcome to you to your postbag, and I'm speaking to you from Landudno, where I'm here to visit and shield myself friends uh, Elaine and Doug. You might be able to hear children laughing and playing in the background, and I can see the pier. Oh, can also see where the Belmont Hotel used to be. That used to be a hotel for the blind. Okay, and we took Dorothy there once. 
listener Dorothy Davis and then we picked her up the week after in a larder. Okay, let's get on with your postbag. Well, it was a nostalgic holiday. Visiting places we used to go with Sheila nearly every springtime. Tell us if you've been anywhere during the summer. Julia's been somewhere nice. Her report is entitled, My Trip to Newark. I went to see my friends Hazel and George and their guide dog Quilla. It was Quilla's birthday, but we didn't sing happy birthday to her, as I had forgotten to make her a cake. I don't think she noticed. But we did go to a lovely old pub and pie and mash, but not ice cream or custard, because it was a Roman pub. Poor old Quilla, she will be retiring next year because she's even older than my friend John and he's 152. The good news is that she'll be going to live with Hazel's mum and dad in Mablethorpe. Quilla that is, not my friend John. He will live in a shop doorway when he retires. George and Hazel have a caravan in Mablethorpe so they can visit Quilla and she's promised to write regularly. Hazel, that is, not Quilla, she can't hold a pen. My friend John fell off his bike on Tuesday morning. I expect he was drunk again. George is getting an optical cane. I think you hold it up to your eyes like a telescope, and you can see through it. Love, Julia. Thank you, Julia. Have you heard of an optical cane? Or tell us what devices help you. And I went to a guide dog's seventh birthday party once. It was a buddy dog called Troy, given to Exel Grange School by guide dogs. Here's an excerpt from my report with comments from the children. I like Troy and he is my best friend. And we play lots of party games with him today. I do like Troy. I like chocolate. I love chocolate too. Troy is encouraged to be a guide dog. Troy now helps children who have got difficulties getting around school. Thank you for that talking newspaper. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to The last child to speak is Tobias Finney, or Toby, who is on holiday somewhere sunny at the moment. You may remember his pirate song he sang in Postbag once. Troy had a retirement party when the children made long ears and ate marshmallows from doggy bowls on the floor. No doubt the idea of the then brilliant teacher Paul Muldoon. Edwina has some good ideas too. Here she is with another tip that might help you see better these dark nights that are creeping up on us. Hi everybody, it's Edwina. Once again, I'm offering help if it's um, of use to some of you listeners. We are once again going into the autumn and the darkness. And each year, some of us, depending what eye disease we've got, find 
to my sight, he's lost again, ready for those Dartmouths. It is important, while you can still see, uh, to use the most abilities that you can. What I did when I got some sight, I used light and lamps. So I'll give you an example. Um, in my living room, I have got a long little living room, a dining room, and um, I've got two crystal lights hanging from the ceiling. Now, one light in the living room area, when it was all needed, was 180 watts with all these small bulbs, candle bulbs. And the important thing was that I had a big mirror, it's still there, the big mirror over my hearth which reflected the light into the mirror and gave more light. You use mirrors for reflection of more light. So I got that light shining into the big mirror over the fire. As I walked towards my living room door, near the front door, in the corner is a small table. And on that table I've got a large, once again, crystal-based lamp. Now that lamp, when it is on, reflects light up the wall towards the ceiling and reflects light onto the table. So when I'm the other end of the living room and I come through to go through to the kitchen, I use that lamp as a guide. It's on all the time and I use it as a guide. So that way I safely go through that living room door to go into the kitchen. When you go into my hall, I've got an oak table, a small table that has got two drawers in. And on that, once again, I've got a large crystal-based lamp. And on the wall behind that lamp, is a mirror and once again the light is reflected into the mirror and it's used as a guide going into the hall or answering the door not that I do that now because I am classed deaf blind so I don't do that now but when I did it was useful so I'm just giving you an example how you can use lamps and crystal lighting. Of course, at the time, years ago, there was British Homes doors. That's where I got a lot of my crystal lighting from. In the sales. <laughs> it is more expensive. But it's been absolutely worth every penny. So, 
any of you that are fearing going into those dark months again, think about how you're lighting this. Take care, everybody. Bye. Sheila's daylight bulbs that used to help Sheila do the lovely cross-stitch cards for people are still blazing away over my shoulder sometimes to help me read better. Tell us about what helps you with a visual impairment. It's so important to share information in your spot post bag. It really helps. Finally, Graham Whale talks about local radio presenter and resource centre benefactor Jeff Harris, who sadly died recently. Well, I've been hearing Jeff Harris's name mentioned in relationship to the resource centre for some time now. And I was thinking, is that the same person, the same person as the radio presenter who must possibly live locally? Well, now he's passed away, I know that it is. And I think Dave summed his career up. And like a lot of those early Mercy of Sound presenters, Stuart Linnell, Jim Lee, Tony Gillum, and many others, they've moved on to the BBC. Oh, in the case of uh, Jeff Harris's um, case, I think he was only temporary filling in for presenters and that uh, dead programme on a Saturday afternoon during the closed football season. <laughs> um, but, yeah, he's certainly been around. The frightening thing is, it's another person who I believe must be younger than I am. And, uh, you know, it is quite frightening when everybody around you is passing away. Well, Graham, please keep in touch. And as we all sang at the end of Sheila's funeral, always look on the bright side of life. And thank you for your very thoughtful card, Richard Bartlam, to me, on what would have been our 55th wedding anniversary on the 21st of September. I went to the Tump Folk Club at the Humber Hotel with Paul and Graham that Thursday night. I met and interviewed an Australian singer called Bruce Watson, whose grandfather recorded the Tasmanian ladies singing and speaking, and she was the last of her kind, and she was recorded on an Edison phonograph with a wax cylinder. I hope you hear that soon. Well, that's all from Postbag this week. I'm really uh, talking to a seagull, actually, at the moment, and as the waves are rushing in. So, thank you for your comments this week, contributions, and bye from Landedno. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. That, of course, was Dave with your Postbag for this week. Last week, Margaret completed the memories from the Charter House, and she now moves along the road to Paxton's Arboretum in London Road Cemetery. The Arboretum is one of the earliest garden cemeteries in the country, designed by Joseph Paxton. Margaret's going to recount some of the characters through time associated with the Arboretum, and this is taken from the Heritage Park Times Historic Coventry of 2023. The names of Lizzie Stewart and Vitruvius Wingrave 
have not until now featured among the roll call of famous Coventry folk from the past, yet that might be about to change. The Victorian ballad singer and the medical scientist are among 13 people buried at London Road Cemetery, whose lives are being researched for a project aimed at highlighting some of the cemetery's less well-known stories. The first Meet the Residents trail, established last year, featured a number of well-known names, including cycle pioneer James Starley, industrialist George Singer, prize fighter Paddy Gill and architect James Murray. Francesca Marsland, Heritage Engagement Coordinator for Historic Coventry Trust, says the new list aims to include lives that are not as well known. We thought it would be a good thing to find out more about those whose lives are not as familiar. There are so many interesting people in the cemetery and it's one way of making sure kids grow up knowing a little bit more about their own city. The work is being carried out by a group of around 10 researchers, including students and well-known local historians like David Fry and Stuart Ferguson. Lizzie Stewart a classically trained singer, Lizzie Stewart, was widely known as the Scottish songstress, even though she was born in Dublin of English parents. Her performances, notably at the Burns Festival at the Crystal Palace in 1859, were received with huge acclaim, and she appeared in concert halls and music venues all over Britain. In 1857, Lizzie married Coventry ribbon manufacturer Albert Thompson, who would go on to become a leading figure in the 19th century city, elected mayor of Coventry eight times. Sadly, Lizzie did not live to share in his civic success. She died at the age of just 30 in November 1861 not long after giving a musical lecture at Birmingham Town Hall in support of distressed Coventry weavers who had been reduced to poverty by the collapse of their industry. Vitruvius Wingrave Born in Coventry in 1858, Wingrave was a keen rugby player and cyclist as a young man and claimed to have ridden the first bicycle brought into England from France. He became a doctor, later specialising in diseases of the ear and throat, and was for 30 years a leading specialist at the London Throat and Ear Hospital, writing several books on the subject. He retired to Lyme Regis in Dorset in 1920, founding the town museum that still exists and endowing it with his own collection of fossils. He retained close links with Coventry and on his death in June 1938, his funeral service was held at Coventry Cathedral before internment in London Road. Now, I hope you recall that last week Nigel started the article on artificial intelligence, what it is and what advantages it may bring to us humans. Now he's going to complete the story of this new, rather complicated technology. Another major area of concern is AI's ability to create fake images. The most headline-grabbing example was a photo of the Pope wearing a white puffer jacket. Seeing is believing? 
Well, no. That was created by a form of generative AI that produces images that it's asked to. You can create an image of anything you want. And they are becoming increasingly realistic. While there have often been simple giveaways, such as too many fingers on a person or gravity-defying elements, they are getting better, convincingly and scarier so. But all of this comes with the question, how do we know what is real anymore or what we can trust? Dr. Meherig Aitken speaks of the risks around misinformation and disinformation. It's not just large language models generating text, but also image generators creating photorealistic images, and AI creating fake videos and synthetic voices. As this becomes more commonplace, we may increasingly see everything as potentially fake. That leads to real risks and real concerns for future democratic processes. We need to have access to reliable, trustworthy information to be able to know what is true and false. There are processes such as watermarking or trusted sources that will become more important in the quest for truth and realism, but experts are fretting over disinformation becoming too easy to create and push. By the time ChatGPT was six months old, AI in general was on the front pages. Phrases such as the end of humanity and existential risk were being thrown around, perhaps surprisingly, by some of those working at the cutting edge of AI. An open letter stating that mitigating the risks of AI was to global significance was published by the Future of Life Institute. It was signed by numerous tech leaders, including Elon Musk, Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, and many more experts, calling for a pause on development of AI. But many, including Dr. Aiken, have seen this as a distraction from the real issues at play. While we have been hearing in the headlines about sensational, far-fetched, hypothetical future risks, there are real present risks already around us today, explains Dr. Aiken. A lot of this relates to AI systems being used to inform decision-making in many areas. These can be decisions about infrastructure, efficiency or best practice. These systems are based on the data that they're trained on, and we know that no data set is perfect. In most cases, these data sets contain historic biases and prejudices that very often perpetuate existing biases or stereotypes within society. A proportion of chief executives, chief financial officers and chief technology officers are, in real life, white and male. So ask an AI art generator to put a business leader in a picture, it'll usually make them male. It's working with a data set it's been given, so it's just reinforcing existing bias. But should it be taught to be fairer, to represent an ideal world? This isn't the beginning of AI but it is possibly the start of our conscious relationship with it. It will transform our lives in some ways for the better. In 2022, I went to see a trial in a Paris hospital where AI was being used to predict breast cancer recurrence rates, to offer a clearer view to patients and clinicians about the treatment needed based on a more educated risk. 
As it was only at trial stage, the patient wasn't even told its findings. But the idea is that if improved, it could help people in mid-risk groups to make more informed choices about their treatment. It does this by analysing not only the specifics of the patient's data, but also the outcomes of a lot of other similar cases. It works on a scale beyond that of a human, and this is just one example of the many ways AI is creeping into healthcare. Author and AI expert Azim Azhar uh, speaks of the opportunities. There are many upsides to AI. We should work out how we beneficially make it widely available. Scientists and governments should put time into making sure that the technology is safe, like the technologies that came before it, such as electricity, cars, or even medicinal drugs. The tech companies weren't just being kind to let us try platforms such as ChatGPT for free. It is vital for them to understand how we, the humans, will interact with them, how we will engage, what we will ask, what our follow-up questions will be. It is from this that they can be developed into a more useful, beneficial, and let's not forget, commercially successful system they could be. This is a moment of enormous promise, yet there are concerns, as are raised by any new technology. But there's also opportunity, not just in medicine, but in tackling climate change, keeping our cities moving more safely and efficiently, boosting for education, and the list of course goes on. AI is not going to go away. It's going to augment our world, for better or worse, and we'll need to start thinking about what it means to be a human in the age of AI. So, from man-made robots to something very much alive, of which many people have a fear, arachnids, spiders. But Dan Capuro, writing in the iNewspaper, explains why you shouldn't fear the spider season this year, and this is read by Sue. It's the time of year that arachnologists brace for, when the weather slowly starts to turn and Britons up and down the country recoil at the sight of giant spiders scurrying across their carpets and lurking in their flower beds. Kew fears of an invasion of huge arachnids terrorising the phobic and tormenting fearful children. The reality, though, is rather different. While people's detachment from nature means that they may have forgotten, the appearance of large spiders each September is actually a normal part of Britain's ecological cycles. The real worry would be if we stopped seeing giant spiders in autumn. The onset of spider season typically results in people thinking that spiders are more common or bigger than they were. But it seems most likely that it is just us forgetting. This is a natural seasonal event. I get asked the same question every September, says Professor Adam Hart, an ecologist at the University of Gloucestershire. Indeed, Sarah Goodacre, Professor of Evolutionary Biology and Genetics at the University of Nottingham and a spider expert, is glad the annual scare season has come around again. I'm almost reassured if there's a story in the papers saying a spider bit my dog because it means the spiders are there and people are noticing them, she jokes. Spiders, says Professor Goodacre, 
of a canaries in the coal mine for invertebrate life because they prey on other insects. The massive decline in insect species across the world, driven largely by pesticide use, has a knock-on effect on spiders which are left without a food source. Their presence, Professor Goodacre adds, is a sign of life. You may be convinced that the home invaders are larger than usual. Depending on the species, there are varying reasons for this. The two most common culprits are orb weaver spiders and house spiders, two species that enter their mating period at this time of year. Orb weavers tend to be seen outside, with the females resting at the centre of huge webs cast between plants. The smaller males are often found lurking at the edge of the web. In the home, it's the aptly named house spiders, which are actually two species, the common and the giant, that you're most likely to find. In the coming weeks, the males, which have considerably longer legs than the females, will be on the lookout for females to breed with. That means they're more likely to be in your home, where the females live year-round, and more likely to be on the move. While there are plenty of myths around spiders, the old parenting adage that it's more scared of you than you are of it is true, says Professor Goodacre. House spiders are a bit like the cheetahs of the spider world. They can sprint and then they're exhausted, she says. So if you see one scurry across the carpet, chances are you've startled it into hiding and now it needs a rest. It was in a darkened corner and you've probably moved something and startled it. And as Professor Goodacre is quick to point out, nature is full of fluctuations and rarely stands still, so it could be the case that there are size fluctuations going on in spider populations. The weather can and does affect spider size and numbers, explains Professor Hart most obviously because it affects the amount of food available for spiders to live on. It's still too early to know what impact this year's whiplash summer, with long unseasonal gloom bookended by scorching heat waves, will have had on the spider populations, said Professor Hart. Prey are affected by all kinds of factors, including the weather, so it is likely that conditions across the summer play an important role. However, at the moment we really can't say whether the summer we've just experienced has had much of an effect, he says. Nevertheless, the heat is likely to provide a fairly prosaic explanation for why you might be seeing more arachnids. Warmer evenings and nights mean we leave windows and doors open for longer. This could well lead to more spiders entering our homes, although there are plenty of cracks and gaps in the average house that will let spiders in, Professor Hart added. And while it's unlikely that dramatic change is happening within our spider populations, unless we monitor them, it's impossible to know for sure. That, says Professor Goodacre, is why we should be counting and measuring arachnids whenever we can. 
sometimes it's the speed that spiders go that can scare us, isn't it? But I hope that's given you a bit of peace of mind if you are a bit nervous. Now, something else maybe to calm your nerves, how about rum, that warm, comforting drink that tends to be associated more with Christmas and mince pies, but many people enjoy it throughout the year. Nigel is going to tell us more. These days, rum is made in more than 50 different countries around the world and comes in dizzying arrays of styles, with every rum, white, gold or dark, old or young, starts life with sugarcane. Most rums are made from molasses, which is a byproduct of sugar production, although a smaller number of rums can also be made from sugarcane honey or fresh sugarcane juice. This sticky, dark molasses is first fermented with water to make a low-strength wash, which is then distilled to make a high-strength spirit. The distillation can either take place in a long, tall column still, or a more curvaceous pot still, and each type of still produces rum with different characteristics. Column stills tend to produce a lighter, drier spirit, such as Cuban rums, which are traditionally made this way. Pot still rums are usually more robust and fruity, with an oily mouthfeel, and they're a big part of what gives Jamaican rums their weight and personality. Many rums are a blend of both column and pot still rums. The rum comes off the still colourless and can be sold unaged as white rum. Some white rums like Bacardi are lightly aged and then filtered to take out the colour. But don't let that lack of colour fool you. White rums can still be very flavoursome, ranging in style from citrusy and herbal to more creamy with tropical notes, depending on how they're made. Alternatively, the freshly distilled rum can be put into oak barrels and left to mature for several years. It's during this time that the rum acquires a deep colour and lots of extra flavour notes from the oak. American oak barrels, which are the most widely used, add notes of vanilla, caramel, banana, stone fruit and sweet baking spice. Some distillers also like to use barrels that have previously contained other alcoholic drinks, such as wine or cognac, to give their rum even more flavour dimensions, or what's known in the trade as a finish. Climate also has a big impact on the way rum matures. In the warm Caribbean, spirits mature around three times faster than they would in a place like Scotland, for instance, a phenomenon known as tropical ageing. Most rums are aged in their country of origin, but there are exceptions. Plantation Isle of Fiji rum, for example, is distilled and aged on the island of Fiji, then shipped to the cooler climes of Cognac in France for a second stint in oak. This helps to enrich the rum's flavour and also enhance its story. Just one story among many behind this varied and fascinating spirit. So, do you like rum, or if not, what's your favourite tip, or perhaps you could tell us in postbag. Now, Coventry is a much different city at the start of the 20th century, and the portrait of those times has been written by Lynn Dorothy Hockton and Beatrice Mary Callow, and here Alan reads another extract of those hurdy-gurdy days. The brewery yard, which was just over the wall from the courts, was a great attraction to all the children in the street, including Grace. At the entrance was the house where the manager lived with his family. 
It was a very old-fashioned house, but to Grace it was a palace, compared with ours. For one thing, it had a front and a side door. The side door was a covered entry where the horses and drays used to go to be loaded up with barrels of beer. Through the entry it led to a wide open yard where the horses were stabled and covered wagons were kept. The children who lived in the brewery house were better clothed and better behaved than most of the children of the courts. Their mother was a tailoress, and she made waistcoats for gentry, working for a local tailor in the town. Sometimes she had piles and piles of work to do, and would sit for hours working far into the night, when the children were in bed at her sewing machine, treadling away with her feet and guiding the garments through her hands. Their name was Gibbard, and there were two boys and two girls. The oldest boy, about a year older than Grace, was called Tom. Then came Amy, then Jackie, who was four, and Nancy, who was two. Tom, being the oldest, had a sort of fatherly attitude towards the other children, and as Grace was such a little thing for her age, she seemed to create a protective urge in him, and she in turn always looked up to him. Some of the other boys were rough, and she hated them. They were cruel, nasty things, she thought, particularly one big boy who used to follow her about and tried her to get her to go to the back yard when he knew none of the other children would be there. She was scared of him, but she didn't tell her ma'am. He reckoned without Tom, though, who threatened what he would do to him if he didn't leave Grace alone. Their favourite game was mothers and fathers. Tom was always the father, and because of that, Grace always wanted to be the mother. But Tom said she wasn't big enough, so a girl named Evelyn Ward from a court across the street was chosen. Grace had to be content to be one of their children. Real mothers and fathers in our street had lots of children, so there was always a big crowd of us in the covered wagon, which we pretended was our house. Despite all the poverty and drunkenness all around us, the games we used to play in those covered wagons were some of the happiest. As the children all grew up, they lost touch with one another, but we never lost sight of Evelyn Ward from the court across the street. Our Evelyn, as her mother always called her, and Amy Gibbard from the brewery house, grew up with us as we all went to the same Sunday school, even after we left the court and moved to another district further away. Just inside the court across the street where Evelyn Ward lived was a little stone house, very quaint and very old, and from what I remember there was a family living in it. We often played with the children in that court. It was nicer than ours somehow. On either side of the court were two shops. On the right was a greengrocer's, and on the left was a haberdashery shop, where they sold everything you could imagine. Grace was always looking in the window of this shop. It seemed to have a special attraction for her, as there were lots of cheap jewellery set out on glass shelves, which seemed to sparkle, especially in the lamplight. An elderly brother and sister kept the shop, which had been handed down by their parents. Grace used to be rather scared of old dukes. He was a tall, thin man with a stiff winged collar, a long, shabby coat, and he wore pinch-nosed glasses, attached to a long chain. When anybody entered the shop, a bell on the door would ring tingling, 
and he would appear from behind a curtain at the back, and look over the top of his glasses and say, Yes, in such an austere voice that if Grace went into the shop with anybody else, she would hide behind them. His sister, Miss Dukes, was also tall and thin, with her grey hair combed upwards into a knot on top of her head. She had a long neck and wore a high-coloured blouse, reaching almost to her ears. She also wore a pinch-nose glasses the same as her brother, with a chain attached to a safety pin on her blouse. Grace was not so scared of Miss Dukes, and when she wanted to buy anything she would watch the window to find out what time each of them went for their meal. If Miss Dukes kept coming into the shop every time the bell rang, she would know Mr. Dukes was having a meal. I think we can all agree we've seen numerous changes to the city over the years. Why not share some of your reminiscences with the other listeners? Now, we know Dave had a wonderful time at the World Blind Games, and he recorded many highlights for us, including this interview with his inspirational blind namesake, Dave. Okay, I'm speaking to a nice couple here. A lady who's just, just introduced me to uh, Dave Healy. Blind who's Dave. Known, blind yeah, Dave. known as Blind Dave. Okay, now This is the gaffer. <laughs> the gaffer. <laughs> What's your name? Debbie. Debbie. Well, thank you for introducing me to your husband. Anyway, tell me about your achievements. Um, Have you won halfway around the world or something? Yeah, well, yeah. Um, I suppose uh, the catalogue is in 2000. Eight, I ran seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. Yeah. And then, where are we? In 2011, I ran and cycled combined from John O'Groats to Land's End over ten days. And that was uh, a marathon distance each morning. Yeah. And then the remaining miles on the bike. So it was uh, ten marathons, ten days, and a combined 700 miles of cycling. Yeah. And then, uh, where are we? 2013, I rode from Switzerland back to the UK, yeah. we covered, uh, well, many countries, seven countries, seven days, and then in, where are we, 20, what was that, 2015, I ran the Marathon de Saab, which is the, um, the MDS, um, where we covered six days across the Sahara Desert, wow, well, that was sufficient. it was a bit warm, <laughs> yeah, just a touch, and then uh, 2016, yeah. um, you know, I'm Listing them off, I did. I took part in the um, Escape from Alcatraz triathlon in San Francisco, yeah, where we swam from the iconic prison. Really? Yeah, mile and a half across San Francisco Bay, yeah. which was um, which was interesting. Yeah. And then it was a, a, um, a cycle and a run. Yeah. And then where are we? 2017. I did all of the great runs. You've obviously heard of the Great North Run. Yes, I have. Well, the Great North team put on 25 runs throughout the year. Yeah. Um, starting January in Edinburgh yeah. and then it's um, throughout the year and it uh, ends in Ethiopia in the November yeah. and we, we did the whole series in 2017. Yeah. 2018 yeah. We, um, we ventured onto the Great Wall of China. Did you? Yeah wow, and that was fantastic and what was lovely my wife and my three kids were then well the three kids were old enough to take part so as a family, you know, we took part, and that was that was tremendous. Yeah. And then 2019, yeah. we did the Comrades, the ultra marathon, which is a double yeah. marathon. Yeah. Um, compl- yeah, South Africa, and it had to be completed in under 12 hours. Yeah. Uh, 
then Covid struck obviously yes. and then in 2022 which was last year um, I organised a bike ride from Colditz in the old East Germany yeah. back to the Hawthorns in West Brom uh, covering 800 miles over 7 days so we're doing a bit you're a hero you escaped from Alcatraz you escaped from, from Colditz yeah. <laughs> and, then, and, and in two weeks time I'm going to take on um, Adrian's wall so yeah. we're going to escape from Scotland back into England <laughs> <laughs> wow fantastic yeah. you're on the, on the back of a tandem presumably yes. were you? oh yeah. yeah you wouldn't like me on the front I can assure you <laughs> that's right yeah. they have a, there's a group from the Coventry Resource Centre called Vista the Visually Impaired and Sighted Tandem Association okay, yeah. that'd be great yeah well look, yeah. look I've, got, I've got a tandem and uh, it's wonderful because West Bromwich Albion sponsored the tandem did they? yeah oh, well, it's in the blue and white of uh, the actual colours of the club and um, obviously it's liveried up yeah. and uh, it's been everywhere and it's wonderful when you you know you ride through the likes of Wolverhampton and Birmingham and people yeah. are giving you the oi, oi, you know and you think yes what a nice bike <laughs> <laughs> fantastic have, have you been to Coventry I mean yeah, yeah, yeah 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 we um, we actually rode uh, what was it about a month ago wasn't it we did um, we did a cycle ride from the club there was about 12 of us and we did um, we went the Hawthorns to the Wolves yeah. from the Wolves to Warsaw yeah. from Warsaw to the Villa the Villa then to is it the Rico Arena where Rico the Coventry Rico. are yeah, from yeah, yeah whatever it's called yeah and then from Coventry we rode to the Blues and then yeah. back to the Hawthorns so we did all the clubs within um, you know our region and uh, interesting ride yeah interesting ride mm-hmm. how do you feel about being here yeah I mean it's um, it's great to be invited it's, it, it's interesting to see if you want to what's coming up for the opening ceremony which is strange because the football's already been going on and yet I'm having an opening ceremony after the football but, um, but now I'm sure there's a lot of people here that are obviously involved with blind sport in some way shape or form and uh, it's nice to think that it's being represented mm. have you taken part in any blind sports or um, you know, other than the running, the cycling, uh, swimming, walking, but I, I, I tend to, I mean, we've got our own little team, I mean, it's built over the years, Team Blind Dave, yeah. and, uh, you know, we, we're doing all sorts of yeah. challenges, but I, I'm, I'm associated with a running club, which is West Bromwich Harriers, yeah. which is n- not particularly a disabled group, but they've, they've uh, you know, enlisted and, and accepted me in, yeah. if you want, as a di- uh, blind disabled person. But I'm now I'm most of my poles and sighted and uh, I just don't differentiate really. I just get on with it. Case of any. I sponsored for a particular charity. I um, I support the Albion Foundation and in short the Albion Foundation they do support blind football, wheelchair football, disability sports in general, uh, special needs and underprivileged kids so you know being being as um, as I call myself the blind old codger from West Brom um, I'm hoping that these kids will look at me and think well blimey if he can do this then I'm sure we can so I'm supporting disability in you know
know, in um, in that way. Do you have something inspiring to say to listeners the Coventry talking newspaper for the the visual impact? Yeah, the only thing that I will say to blind folk is stop worrying about what you can't do and concentrate your efforts on what you can do, and you'll succeed in many many things. You know, the negative is I can't, but the positive is I can. So just believe in yourselves. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're a real hero. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Dave, it's great to meet you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It is amazing to hear some of the extraordinary achievements of people with sight loss. Good on them. And that just about brings us to the end of Outlook for another week. So from the team and me, Sheila Allen, it's goodbye till next week. <laughs>